Well, hello, welcome to um, Project A Plus. I'm Hunter. I'm Key. And today on this podcast, we're going to do a very special uh, triple feature episode of three movies that have very obvious and clearly related connections between uh, each other, which is to say the new hit Marvel film, Avengers colon Infinity War, the uh, 1999 um, Alan Rudolph film, Breakfast of Champions, adapted from the Kurt Vonnegut novel of the same name. And finally, the 1997 uh, Kevin Smith uh, perfect masterpiece, Jay-Z Navy. <laughs> okay, so uh, Avengers Infinity War. Uh, I don't. I feel like this is a movie that doesn't need to be introduced, because <laughs> everyone's seen it. But I think you should introduce it anyway, just, just broadly. Well, uh, the Avengers are a group of superheroes who fight monsters and stuff, uh, and this is the third Avengers movie, uh, where they're fighting against the purple thumb man, Thanos. Um that's it. <laughs> I don't know. It's the uh, the culmination of a vast tapestry of similar such films. Uh, what is it? 17 or 19 of them? That all interweave. And this is part one of the, the showdown of all that. Um, so yes, I'm deeply invested in the Avengers Marvel Universe. Mostly out of nostalgia, I guess. But also because I genuinely enjoy them as like spectacle films. What's your nostalgia spring from? Uh, reading comic books when I was a teenager. Okay. I was going to see if it would contrast with my experience, but uh, if I have any nostalgia for Marvel stuff, which I do to some extent, um, it comes from also reading comic books as a kid. But I also continued to read them up until I was maybe... So sort of stuff now, but watching... Every time I watch a Marvel movie, I'm like, I should go back and read comic books. So maybe I'll pick them up back up again. Have you, have you seen all the Avengers movies? Or the previous Marvel movies? Okay, so we both had some experiences now youths of comic books. And I've seen some of the previous MCU films, but there's a significant gap leading up to this one. Uh, so so I saw the first Avengers. I didn't see the second. Didn't see any of the Captain America films that uh, these directors were known for. Those are, those are actually really good. I don't know if you'd care for them, but uh, I, I quite like them a lot. Especially Captain America's Civil War. Yeah, I watch. I like. I watch it if I if I have access to it, just to prove you wrong, or prove you right if you think I won't like it. I guess. But I'm glad that I can get you to waste time just by assuming you won't like something. <laughs> it's kind of uh, concerning. I've seen all all of them besides Thor: The Dark World, which I could not be bothered to see. So, Avengers: Infinity War. Hugh, what did you think? Um. So I didn't. I didn't like hate the experience. So one thing for me that uh, I like least about the Marvel films, and I guess some similar blockbusters, is usually the, the running time, but more specifically, the exhaustion you feel by the final act. I mean, you feel. <laughs> that I feel. And often it's in films that I've enjoyed up until that point, and I just was like, I wish it would just like wrap up you know, neatly here. Do you feel the same way about uh, the ones that you like? No, like I think, I think um, Spider-Man Homecoming avoided that problem i didn't have that issue there um black panther i didn't love the final battle scene but it didn't feel like it was bloated like it bloated the film out of proportion or anything like that it it felt necessary from a story point of view to have this all come together there it's just that i didn't enjoy the way it was executed particularly whereas things like the avengers film that i did see the first one does have that bloated final act um that Uh, i guess pushed things out for me 
But I didn't really enjoy much of that film, really, to be honest. Yeah, I, I'm not the biggest fan of the uh, proper Avengers movies up to this one, actually. And the second one didn't interest me at all, and I didn't see it. I like the second one, but uh, it has problems. So, in contrast with this film, the Russo brothers who, who directed it haven't really been given the most enviable task of tying all this together and trying to satisfy a massive audience who have various ties to all the different characters to different degrees. So it's, it's a really difficult project, I think, to tackle. Especially because, like, so many different, like, annoying fanboys are going to hold you, like, responsible if you, like, fuck it up, too. Not just fans, also, like, the, the hierarchy of Marvel, obviously wanting you to deliver on something. So I think because of that task that they've been given to... Mm-hmm to blend all these previous films together in some sort of satisfying way. Uh, It means that they don't have a lot of time to waste, uh, as it were. And essentially this film is a lot of self-contained battle sequences, really, or action set pieces. Not a lot of quiet scenes, although there's some, where they're just interacting with other superheroes. There's all some action set piece that's going throughout the whole film, often simultaneously, and we're cutting between characters who have been isolated in pairs or, or whatever. I think by virtue of the way that's been done, you don't feel there's suddenly a big exhaustion by the time you get to the final battle sequences because it's kind of been like that all the way through. It's got a ability to it. Yeah, and it's 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 been it's been going all the way through the film um, these type of battles, and it just you know maybe the scope widens a bit by the end, but it doesn't feel like it's a different part of the film or anything like that. No, no, it definitely feels uh, cohesive. I think so. To me, whatever exhaustion I normally experience. Uh, by a certain point in the film, was kind of dispersed evenly over this film. <laughs> so it was more of a different experience for me. But as I said, I didn't I didn't not enjoy the film. Uh, I think it had some moments I liked. Jack Peter Dinklage is the giant dwarf man. Yeah, so that, that does lead me to, to one of my quibbles with the film. I don't know if it's even a quibble. Oh, I love that. <laughs> but um, this is really emphasising that some part of the Marvel Universe is people putting on terrible accents. So, uh, we already know about Benedict Cumberbatch. <laughs> have you seen, have you seen Doctor Strange? I've only seen bits of Doctor Strange. I haven't seen the, the whole film. It's actually pretty good. He's, he's bad. <laughs> Is his accent improved by this point? It didn't seem quite as bad to me, but I'm it not seemed, sure. It seemed about the same, actually, I'd say. So you've got him, but you've also got Chris Hemsworth's kind of terrible accent, honestly. And then you throw in Peter Dinklage doing his god-awful Game of Thrones British accent. Great, what are you talking about? And it's and it's Peter Dinklage and Chris Hemsworth like sharing a scene for a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, what am I watching? Like that that was the bit that uh, stood out for me. I love that scene so much. Mostly because like, like no, people are going to hate this. And the, the thing about accents is sometimes they're bad, but it doesn't matter so much, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe Chris Hemsworth, let's say, gets away with it because he's well, very he's sort, sort of a cheesy character <laughs> yeah yeah and it's kind of part of it like it's not self-serious i guess no yeah it's weird that it's weird contrasting to people who do who are really good at doing accents like uh tom holland i think does really is really good at hiding his british accent well like i wouldn't know if someone said he wasn't american in some cases an accent can be so bad that you can't see the performance that's been the case for me with peter dinklage in his game of thrones work everyone has like praised him I like Peter Dinklage as an actor. Like, I've seen him in stuff before I ever saw him in Game of Thrones. I liked him. But his accent is so bad in, in Game of Thrones that I, I cannot see his performance whatsoever. It's it's so distracting to me. So it was just funny to see him turn up with the same accent in this film. Were you, uh, were you, were you sad at any deaths? 
This is another point that uh, many other people have made in, in some of the reviews I've looked at. You can't really feel any sense of loss uh, in, in character deaths of a film that you know has a sequel. You know the characters in it have their own films that are coming out. You know they're not ever going to kill off people like Spider-Man, for example, without some mechanism to bring them back. I mean, which is true to the spirit of comic books. Like how yeah, many exactly. superheroes have died and then obviously you can't kill off Superman. That's not, that's not, I, just don't, I just don't think of it as a criticism, you know? It, it's a criticism in the sense that it, it doesn't like register as like, wow, this is such a shock as maybe they want it to be. I feel specifically the scene of Spider-Man worked for me. The kill, the dying of Spider-Man where he, he sort of... I don't, I don't want to die! Yeah, with his surrogate father figure. See, that worked for me because I'm like, oh, this is probably going to be, you know, the next movie is probably going to be Tony Stark's like, last Avengers film, right? So, I can see that working as like a thing where like, all the people whose con- contracts are put up, if you want to be crass about it, <laughs> actually die in the next film. I've heard some people say the same thing, and I, ex- I, expe- I expect that to be the case. I think it was like Chris Evans and... and uh, Robert Downey Jr. I mean, I bet I bet Hemsworth will maybe too. Uh, you know what? Who knows? It really depends on what they want to do in the future. But I bet I I'm I'm assuming that Chris Evans will because he's talked about how he kind of wants to move away from acting entirely. So he, he seems like he doesn't want to be in it that much, to be honest. From from like his performance in this film, like he's not given much to do, like in the actual. No, I mean, none of them. No, no one is given like much to perform. Oh, but but people get a lot media roles than others, like. Yeah, but it's kind of like Captain America specifically sort of is, um, I feel by virtue of, like, the character that he is sort of sidelined in this. Because he's not, like, a spaceman. He can't go to space. <laughs> but uh, he's, he, actually, Chris Evans is really good at the other ones, I think. <laughs> I like his beard a lot. It was odd that, uh, I mean, not odd, like, it's calculated. But the fact that none of the core Avengers were disintegrated. Yeah, because they're all going to die in the next one. <laughs> But I think, I, I assume they will also want the next one to be sort of like, oh, this is going to be like a throwback to the first film, right? We're going to bring back all the old. That's why Thanos is not so much like a brutal pragmatist as a fanboy who just wanted to strip <laughs> it back to the original core team. That should be kind of a funny uh, <laughs> motivation. <laughs> because like his motivation makes no sense. So let's explain a little bit. The the main thing that that compels this plot, right? Is this this big purple guy with a giant, uh, a rippled chin? He's apparently not, according to himself, not an evil person, which I guess villains don't normally think they are. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but his his motivation is that the universe has only enough resources for uh, a certain number of people, and it's less than the people that are in the universe. And the solution to that is to kill half the people in the universe so everyone else can enjoy the resources that have now been freed up yeah well he's a regular megalomaniac so there's a couple of odd things here first of all how could it possibly be exactly 50 percent? if he's such a pragmatist surely he could have worked out how much resources do we actually have it's not likely to be ex- enough for exactly 50 percent of the population he's either like like too low or too high and people are dying needlessly or aren't dying who should be dying why didn't they come up? I mean, I, I get it. It's a silly film. But wh- why didn't they go, like, I've made the calculations and 43.5% of, of the population can live and the rest of the yeah. okay. <laughs> Who cares? <laughs> um, and the other one, uh, which occurred to me as well, is he's getting all these powers, which they, they show he's getting godlike powers, and it doesn't occur to him to, to do anything other than kill half the universe. Couldn't he increase the resources by 50%? He's a, he's a megalomaniac. He's <laughs> convinced of the 
I don't know. Who cares? <laughs> it doesn't matter, but it's it's no. silly. What did, you, what did you think of Josh Brolin as the big purple man? Uh, I mean, it was his performance was fine. I thought it was good considering that he's played a giant purple man. There was it wasn't like broad. It wasn't a necessarily hugely broad performance. No, I thought he hit the sort of more emotional bits well. But the emotional stuff did not like register at all with me as effective. The stuff with him and, and his daughter. And... I thought I thought that was it was okay. Like, I thought that was kind of like, oh, that's messed up. But... Well, because they don't really establish enough, because they had to, to do, I guess, so much fast tracking. Because I've seen the Guardians movies where they cover a bit of that stuff. But it's not established enough what sort of relationship, from his perspective, what his relationship has been like with his daughter. We only see this flashback in this film of, of him meeting her after he's killed her mother and a little bit of exchange there but it's not really established much that the scene in which he he murders her to get a little gemstone <laughs> was very effective uh you know what i it it worked well enough for me so how did this film work for you having seen a lot of the lead up to it was it like a satisfying yeah it was really satisfying i really enjoyed it a lot um i mean i'm not gonna argue i think i think civil war is probably the pinnacle of like it's sort of like it's probably the best version that it could possibly be, right? And this isn't quite achieved that high because as as uh, fractured as Civil War is between multiple different characters, at least in that there's like it's it's like Iron Man and Captain America are like the two weeds, right? Versus this where there's not I mean I guess unless you want to count Thanos, <laughs> it's so like uh, fragmented into all these other characters that uh, it only sort of. I I honestly can't imagine watching this as like your first like Marvel film and being like oh that was this experience that I understood anything about like it, it's so reliant on you having been invested in the plot line of the other films right and I I really enjoyed it in that sense yeah I don't think that's a problem at all and there was a, a New Yorker article that you know enraged I guess the more vocal idiotic fanboys fanboys and it did it did criticize that element that people are just appear in the film and aren't really set up. But I mean, it'd it'd be even stupider if they tried to set up all these characters and especially like they're not saying this should be your first Marvel film. No, no, no one's saying that. Like it's, it's part of the franchise. Like, I mean, obviously you can criticize anything for any reason, but it's just sort of a silly track. And it's like, it's, this isn't going to be just based on like the sheer, you know, people who go to the movies. This isn't going to be anyone's first Marvel film. And if it is, I mean, it's your own fault. Like, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> Son of a bitch. <laughs> so, and and then, and I mean, we can kind of lose sight of this because we're so used to it now after it's been going so long when there's been so many films, uh, just in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, not including the Fox and Sony stuff. This achievement, whether you, like, it's in tune to your sensibilities or my sensibilities particularly, uh, it's kind of unprecedented. Yeah, it is. In cinema, of this scale. And this well-received, and it, this, it makes this many people so happy as well and and this this brought an audience so happy. and in part i was just impressed by just the fact that they were able to pull it off to the extent that they were you know what i mean they weren't set up to make the best film they could if they had like a blank slate to work with um and they may have obviously showed their talents a bit better in the captain america film i think i'll uh enjoy this one more i liked it a lot it's just like a pure spectacle experience right and i thought some of the emotional stuff worked but i think i'll enjoy this a lot more when i've seen the second part you know because, like, for all they've done to be like, oh, this is actually, it's it's not, they're only sort of related. Like, this is, it is such a deliberate, like, cliffhanger that it's like, this isn't entirely satisfying as a standalone story at all. 
uh, it can be easy, I think, to take it for granted, especially because, you know, I haven't loved all of them and, and they do have stuff that I don't like, like the third act stuff I talked about and some of the action scenes and stuff that I, I never really uh, enjoyed on a visceral level. But but these films are so much better than, you know, they could have been or that I would have expected them to be if someone had told me like, like 10 years ago, hey, there's going to be some, you know, superhero films. Because what we knew was super, of superhero films back then, you know, like Daredevil and stuff like that, this just absolute garbage. If I imagined myself when I was a, a comic book fan, heavily into that, like uh, as, a, as a kid or early teenager, and, you know, this happened then, I would have absolutely lapped it up and, and it would have been the fulfillment of, you know, my wildest dreams about these things. The, the, I think the, the thing that really is the, the key to the, the success of the Marvel films, and this isn't anything new, many people have said the same thing, uh, is the humour. It has just the right amount of knowingness about it. It's not enough to, like, undercut, like, the specific stakes of the film. Yeah, but it's enough to say, like, hey, we know this is a bit silly and we're in on that joke. And it, it almost makes the drama more compelling, you know, in that way. And it gives um, a broader audience who may not otherwise be, you know, into this type of thing, license to enjoy something, to align themselves with this uh, in a way that maybe they wouldn't be so readily able to do with some of the DC films. Although they do make a lot of money as well when they work, I guess. But what did you think of the uh, action scenes in this? I enjoyed them. I think the Rousseau's are pretty good at uh, making like all CGI uh, scenes or CGI scenes with like one human actor uh, seem pretty crunchy, I guess. So I think they're I think they're all pretty good. I think the battle in New York is probably the best one, uh, just because it's like these I don't know this weird combination of people using power. I mean, that's I think I think that's the that's the uh, best thing about Captain America: Civil War is it's like it really is just like a sort of comic book splash page come to life where these all these different characters they're all using like their powers in, in accordance with each other and it's just like sort of fun to watch that you know i think that sort of comes through in that in that scene that's a good point that actually disappointed me a little bit because when i did used to read comic books i really liked those george perez avengers uh runs in which you would have these giant splash pages where it would be like almost a where's wally panel or something of various avengers on screen fighting all, all manner of people and there was just this great visual sense to it this didn't really deliver on that to me i think i think you should watch a uh, captain america civil war which has has a lot of that or like, there's one sequence in particular that's like really good with that specific well i'll be interested to see it because the there is something inherently visual and fun about throwing all these you know individ individualist heroes together i think that battle in wakanda did it to some extent there's something there's something in that in those george perez panels which i wanted to see sort of captured in a really silly ludicrous way that you know i mean i can't really criticize the film for not living up to my exact conception dream. of something that I want, but I would like to see more of that, like to ramp it up in terms of the visuals. Like I was actually thinking that maybe the Wachowskis could have done something interesting with that type of scene. Yeah, they should they should direct a superior movie, but they probably won't because it, it require uh, seeking so much creative control. I assume. I did have some problems with the action scenes in terms of the physical stakes because there was some logic to the fights which gets kind of thrown out the window and at certain points which makes it hard to really get invested in in the fights as anything but nonsense especially with thanos even before he has got all the jewels uh hue stone gems what stones whatever even before he like collects them all and becomes super god he he's already got all these amazing powers um and he's in the first scene, he's, like, destroyed Thor and killed Loki, right? 
and he's using all this mystical stuff. Like he doesn't need to worry about people physically hitting him, right? He can do all this stuff. He can rerun time essentially at some point in the film. So it doesn't make sense when like Captain America lands a punch. It doesn't make any sense at all. It's just like it, it, it seems to just be there to, to make Captain America not look redundant to the proceedings. So you get this weird balancing act. Suddenly he's like the most powerful thing ever and everyone like cows before him and he's this horrible threat. And then Captain America can like hit him. It just, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, I think you just play with it at that point. So like that, that kind of takes me out of it a little bit because I don't know where I stand. I do, I do love the scene where he justifies his like genocidal plans where he's talking about his home planet. That was so stupid. <laughs> it's like, Wait, you think that the thing that's that would have prevented your plan of going to see is you murdered half the population? <laughs> what are you talking about? They should have shown the scene as like a, you know, a bureaucratic political discussion and everyone's going, what are we going to do with these resources? Sir, I have an idea. <laughs> I love it even more. It was, it was like a, it was like an open town hall. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, uh, Citizen Thanos has, has a proposal. <laughs> yeah. Everyone laughs him out of the room. He's like, oh, show them. <laughs> so that, that would be great because it would make it, make him seem like more of a petty idiot who's kind of just trying to get his pride back. Um, the funny thing is, so I read about the original story that's based on like an early 90s run, right? Um, and Thanos didn't have this motivation. What's up? It's, it's, it's like 80s, right? Whatever it is. Um, but Thanos's motivation... Oh yeah, because he's obsessed with uh, Lady Death. Yeah, he's trying to court Lady Death by, you know, in, indulging in enough destruction that he'll get her attention or something. That's as much as I looked into it. But that's kind of makes more, more sense as a motivation. But it's also a little bit silly to introduce that concept this late in the piece so they had to do something so overall how many stars did you give this film uh like maybe a three or something like that mm. i would give it four stars i thought it was pretty good it's probably it's on the definitely on the higher end of the movies that i've seen this year i think the only scale of uh rating that matters is was it better than chasing amy <laughs> <laughs> that should be the only rating system that's most films though it should be better or worse than chasing amy it's like the fulcrum <laughs> Well, was it better or was it Chasing Amy? I mean, I probably like Chasing Amy more than... Oh, so I was in Star Wars, whatever it's called. The Avengers Infinity <laughs> uh, uh, Yeah, Star Trek. Uh, so does that lead us like neatly into Chasing Amy then? I guess so. Was there any Was there any overlap, I guess? Uh, first, we're talking about a movie based on comics. Now let's talk about a movie that stars comic book artists. That's right. That's right. It's perfect. And then we'll have to work out a link between this and Breakfast of Champions while we talk about it. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure something will come out naturally. So I made you watch this one, so I should introduce it. So it's a uh, 1997 film from uh, Kevin Smith. It's his third film after Clerks, as you would say, Clarks, as I would say. Clarks! No, that's a clock. And uh, after Clerks and More Rats. This was his uh, maturing as a filmmaker. Have you seen those two films? I have. And from memory, like I haven't <laughs> sat down and uh, revisited all of Kevin Smith's films, but from memory, uh, this is the best one, in my opinion, that he's made. Because uh, he's made some terrible films. So if you thought this wasn't great... <laughs> I'll probably avoid the rest of the films he's made. What is the worst film he's made then that you've seen? Uh, the worst that I've seen could be Clerks 2. That was horrible. But I also saw some of Cop Out, which he didn't write, but is horrible. 
I've seen I've seen maybe half of Zack and Gary make a porno, which uh, the fact that I've seen half enough uh, should be enough. There's one of his that's not his worst film by far, but uh, Cop Out, which stars Bruce Willis, also the star of Breakfast of Champions, which is a, a later time. Anyway, so I I remember seeing this film as a teenager, I think, and it did make a strong impression on me then. And I did rewatch it recently for this podcast. Um, so the film tells the story of Ben Affleck, who plays some guy <laughs> who's a comic book artist, writer with Jason Lee, who plays some other guy who inks the comic books and stuff. And he falls in love with a woman who he discovers is a lesbian, but she gets into a relationship with him. And, and then eventually he, he can't handle the things he discovers about her past and can't get past that himself. Specifically her sexual past. So let's uh, start with your reaction. Oh, I fucking hate this movie so much. Did you really hate it? No, I thought it was bad. I didn't hate it. So what did you not like about it? Uh, I just didn't like anything, really. <laughs> <laughs> I thought the acting was terrible, uh, especially especially the two leads. Yeah, I mean, I think Ben Affleck is not very good in this at all. Kevin Smith, at least prior to this film, certainly was known for his dialogue, not so much his cinematic invention, <laughs> as as you might have gathered from the way this film is shot. But anyway, the dialogue, the, the witty dialogue, as it were, which is, I guess, in the first act of the film mainly, does not hold up well <laughs> at all. Um, I mean, as a teenager, I probably enjoyed it a lot. As a, as a 32-year-old man, it sounds very clunky, and Ben Affleck does it no favours. Jason Lee actually puts in quite a good performance, I think. I know you didn't like him in this, but he, his character is supposed to be a bit of a dick. And I think he was quite good in this, actually. I, but I, I think I think um, he's supposed to be a likable dick. Yeah, I mean, there's the, I think there's a degree to which uh, a lot of the characters are supposed to be more likable than they are. Especially, especially Ben Affleck's character, who is a dick. So Kevin Smith has said that the Ben Affleck character is the closest he's got to portraying himself on screen. <laughs> so there you go. It was supposed to be self-critical. Like, that, that was kind of the motivation for the film. Like, he knew he was a jealous jackass. In fact, he dated or was dating Joey Lauren Adams prior to this film. And uh, that was incorporated into the screenplay. So there is there is some acknowledgement on Kevin Smith's part that it's not supposed to be, like, a, the most flattering portrait of no. a person. And I think the strength of the film is kind of as a criticism of, of that type of man, really. Even if it's, even if he's supposed to be also somewhat sympathetic as well. I just uh, didn't care. I didn't find him sympathetic at all is the problem. <laughs> Which sort of undermines the whole movie's... Because the movie, I think it expects you, the viewer, to be on his side, right? Not not wholly. Or at least, or at least we're way too emotionally. Not the stuff that he does is terrible, but it's supposed to be like a... A film that, oh, it forces you to confront your own biases, right? Yeah, I, I would say up until the point, like, when he, you know, freaks out after discovering her, her past. Like, at least up until that point, you're supposed to be on team Ben Affleck, right? Yeah, I just never was. <laughs> and I agree, like, he he's annoying, like, the whole way through. Which underlines the entire movie. <laughs> yeah, and Ben Affleck is really flat, especially in the comedic scenes. But I actually find that the dramatic stuff uh, works a lot better than the comedy stuff. I thought in this film, it just felt it just felt so overwritten and um, overwritten is 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 definitely a hallmark of Kevin Smith's screenplays. I just I just I just I, I just didn't really respond to it at all. I thought I thought it was just yeah, like I said, terribly written. I thought his direction is just so flat and dull. 
Oh yeah, that's that's another one of his hallmarks. Another one of his hallmarks. A written dialogue and no cinematic sense. But like, I could see that being fine when you're working with like a super low budget, like Clerks, right? But like, you know, learn how to move a camera, dude. <laughs> and like, it seemed like he only made his actions like one take too, to a certain degree. Did you get that feeling? Like, there's a scene at the at the end, which is definitely my, my favorite part of the entire movie. Uh, is the is the final, not the final scene, but the. Uh, Scene where Ben Affleck proposes having a threesome. Not, not because I thought it was like dramatically good, but just because I thought it was like, I thought it was really funny. There's, a, there's a part in that in that scene where Ben Affleck like he flubs a line, and they keep on going. It was really, it was really galling. The rest of the scene was so amazing that uh, yeah, yeah, you had to use that take. Now, uh, there's a couple of things I like about this, at least in theory. I'm a kind of a sucker for romantic comedy things in which the leads do not end up together at the end. Oh, of course you are. That's what I kind of enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> because he, you're miserable. <laughs> it's because it reflects my own experience. Yeah. Uh, so I like that. And I also liked the attempt to criticize that type of male jealousy and possessiveness and ego. And You know, I, I will applaud him for doing that, right? I, I, could, I could see someone really wa- watching this movie and really finding it good for that reason, right? But for me... Someone who's like not <laughs> jealous, just sort of like whatever. It, 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 it feels sort of didactic. I mean, not in a negative way, I guess. But I often find that if you agree with someone about their sort of didactic lesson they want to t- teach you in art, it sort of makes it insufferable to watch. And I felt that way about this to a certain extent as well. You mean like you were like, well, of course he's an idiot. So yeah. So what's the dramatic crux of this? Like you know. Like, there's no point where I'm like, oh, yeah, this is a logical response to find out that your, your partner is more, uh, has, has experimented sexually more than you have. Uh, and I, I will point out at, at this juncture that I, I'm not saying I relate to that character or his motivations, but it does ring true to, you know, what I know of people. But uh, I'm only talking about my specific experience watching this. The other interesting aspect of this Although there are a lot of problems with it, I think the way it deals with LGBT characters is kind of interesting for a film from 1997. It's definitely more progressive than the majority of films from that era. It's more progressive than the Judd Apatow films that aped it and came much, much later. Yeah, I guess so. But though, on the other hand, I can't, I can't think of a single LGBT character in any of his films, so... Well, that's kind of what I mean. Like, they're not even present, and there's a um, knee-jerk homophobia underlying some of it as well. Yeah. I did like the, um, I think probably my favorite character was the their, their comic book friend. Yeah, I thought he was good, too. Yeah. yeah. The scene in the, 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 that opened the film, where that the convention is probably the only one that I enjoyed. <laughs> that was kind of like a joke. And I, I do, I do think it's like sort of interesting criticism, like, uh, what image do you have to be to in order to sell like your artistic product, right? And I thought there's some interesting because in there, even though it's kind of like weird, <laughs> I don't know, comes with being like a super white guy, being like, ah, black people have to pretend to be more militant in order to sell their comic books. It's like a little, it's a little weird. But I thought that guy gave a pretty good performance. Yeah, he's good in the film. Yeah, and I thought I thought the premise of his character was uh, funny enough, and also felt kind of real too. Yeah. No, I agree. But can we t- can I talk about the element of the movie that I hated the most, like more than anything else? Fucking soundtrack. Oh my god. You didn't enjoy <laughs> the Mighty Mighty Boss time? <laughs> no. I loved it. It was so terrible. <laughs> the soundtrack is terrible. But you didn't live through that period, man. You were like two or whatever. So what? <laughs> <laughs> 
I was in the trenches in the 90s. Like, I listened to some of this stuff. <laughs> but uh, the score is also bad. Just anytime there's music played, I just hated it, which is a lot. Yeah, I never found it. I never found it, like, I didn't, I didn't think, like, any of the lines were especially, like, well-written or clever. No, especially, especially the first act. Can I, can, I tell you, can I tell you the part that made me laugh the hardest? Okay, this is the only note that I took. Uh, best part of Chasey Davy. This is in the threesome scene, right? Uh, where uh, Amy is sort of like giving her monologue about why she doesn't want to ha- go through with it with uh, Ben Affleck and Jason Lee. <laughs> and there's a shot that, or there's this, there's a bit where she's like, I can even, I, as unlikely as it might be, I could even fall for Jason Lee uh, while we're having sex. And, and then that would completely undermine our relationship. And there's this shot of Jason Lee just sort of like reacting to this, and it just looks really like sad. <laughs> It's like, who could ever love Jason Lee? And I thought that was so funny. Like, it obviously wasn't intended to be. But uh, his character is so annoying. Like, why Why is Ben Affleck friends with him? He definitely delivers Kevin Smith's dialogue better than the other actors. I mean, obviously he's performing a character. But there seemed to be sort of like a... Um... Yeah, careful, he's a Scientologist, so back off. Oh, yeah, it didn't seem to be much acting when he was, like, using all the, the slurs, you know? And, like, I just, I thought it'd be so annoying. Like, ever he was on screen, I was just like, please, cut away. Just go away, Jason Lee. Also, I, I was speaking about things I hated uh, that were very 90s. Ben Affleck's goatee is so offensive. <laughs> <laughs> the best thing is, if you look at the trail, or if you look at the poster, he is clean-shaven. <laughs> Come on, it's like an Iron Man, uh, Doctor Strange, Gary, right? <laughs> it looks fine on them. It looks terrible on Ben Affleck. So I'll give you a little trivia tidbit. So you know the scene, the earlier scene in the film in which uh, Jason Lee's character is being called a tracer by the guy at like, the comic book convention? Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's Scott Mosier, who was the co-editor and producer and friend of Kevin Smith and co-host of his Smodcast podcast, one of our rivals uh, in the industry. He had a crush on the lesbian filmmaker Genevieve Turner. Mm, writer of one of my favorite films. Go Fish. Uh, American Psycho. <laughs> Go Fish. That was the film. Uh, yeah, that was, like, that, that was the genesis of the idea, right? Yeah, that was the genesis of... There's like a dream sequence in that film that mirrors one of the scenes in this film. Have you seen that? No. In which uh, Joey Lauren Adams' character gets ostracized from her lesbian friends because she's now hooking up with a man. So Scott Mosier's crush on her got incorporated into the screenplay as well as... Wow, what a fucking loser. <laughs> ...stuff about uh, his own jealousy. Sexual inadequacy. It is, it is really annoying to me that uh, he decided to put the moral of the film's mouth... Or, uh, mess- like, the, the film's message, as it were, right? In his own mouth. <laughs> it's just like, come on. Also, Kevin Smith is so bad at acting. <laughs> Like he's worse than Quentin Tarantino. He's not. He's much he is. No, he's Tarantino. so much no, worse. No, no, no. I'm not hearing that. Quentin Tarantino is like one of the worst actors I've ever seen of any stripe. Kevin Smith is fine. Kevin Smith like, is no. He's so wooden, especially oh within the context of this film. Like he's actually <laughs> in the context of the film where everyone is wooden. <laughs> yeah, everyone's bad. So he's fine. But so what I'm saying is that in, in Quentin Tarantino's films, he is in contrast to all these other great, rich performances, right? No, he's just terrible in any. But no, I'm saying I'm saying if you extract out Kevin Smith from this, it would be worse than Quentin Tarantino is. No. Uh, okay. Well, different opinions. <laughs> what? Well, okay. So what? Did, what? Why did you care for this film so much? I honestly, it's like 
I don't care for this film that much these days. I just wanted to make you watch it. <laughs> God, you're a monster. I guess I do owe you for making you watch uh, Avengers Infinity War, but... You'd never seen a full Kevin Smith film, so... You have to. You have to. It's part of your education. Yeah, yeah. He's such an important filmmaker. <laughs> and I remember liking it more than I, mean, I cool. do. I feel like now. I feel like if I'm gonna watch it, I should have just watched Courses. That's the only one that really matters, right? Yeah, but that's not very good. <laughs> <laughs> no shit. None of his films are good. Like, if you think the acting is bad in this, the lead in Clerks is terrible. But I can. I. I I'm. I'm more able to excuse that because it's such a low per budget production. You know what I mean? He's still bad in this film, in, in which they're talking to like executives who want to give them a cartoon. Oh, you mean you mean the scene with Matt Damon? <laughs> yeah. So the guy who's not Matt Damon is the lead of Clerk. Oh, really? He's like fine. I don't know. He's he's not a good actor. <laughs> I, I'll buy that. The other guy in Clerks is not bad. Like he's quite he's relatively convincing as his character, but the lead is is not very good. I think this is a better film than Clerk. I, I like Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, just to, uh, to talk about this for a bit. But, but mostly because they both seem like huge assholes to some degree. And uh, the other celebrity camera, Joe Quesada, the Marvel... Oh, the former editor-in-chief. Who did yeah, he play? Yeah, former editor-in-chief, um, as himself, somewhere. Where was he? Probably at the convention somewhere. Yeah, probably. And I think he drew the artwork for the... Um, no, that was Mike, that was Mike Alrad. No, 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 no. Not the artwork of the main characters. The artwork of um, Dwight Ewell's uh, character. Oh, that one? Really? The the mil- the militant. Yeah. Whatever it was called. It, I, like, some, slightly offensive. There's, there's a racial story. So <laughs> yeah. I should say. Um, also, the, yeah, Mike Alred, who drew all the other art, is in there for a scene, too. In the, in the beginning. He uses, like, one line. And uh, Kevin Smith did go on to write uh, a number of Marvel comic books. Yeah, and he's terrible at them. I've never read one. I've read his Daredevil. It's not very good. But I was really hoping that, because uh, obviously the end of the movie is um, Ben Affleck's character writing a comic book about his experiences with... Uh, a comic uh, book slash the movie chasing it. Yeah. Well, I was really hoping that like the last scene would like cut to a comic book filter and it'd be like someone closing the comic book. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> His, his character is such a creep in this movie. The prob- I think the main problem is, and again, this, this could be, I mean, a combination of this screenplay and Ben Affleck's terrible performance, but what would give it more heft is if we could understand why Joey Lauren Adams liked him at all. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he's not charming in those early scenes when he's supposed to be, so it makes no sense that, that she would fall for him in any way. But yeah, I still kind of like it. <laughs> I just don't understand why. Okay, how many stars did you give it? I don't know. Um, maybe like three and a half. Oh god! But we shouldn't we shouldn't give things star ratings. We don't we're not reductive. Films are fluid and. What should our rating system be? No rating system. I'm not a fan of rating systems. Ah, of course you're not. I'm definitely a consumer of them, so like I can be like high and mighty about it, but sometimes I'm like, yeah, but how many stars do you give? And I don't want to read like a whole dissertation on something. But yeah, exactly. So people could just skip to this part of the podcast and not listen to the rest. But I mean, when you listen to a podcast, you're you're there to listen to the discussion. You're not like full forwarding through to find the star reviews and go, okay, end of the story. Anyway, Breakfast of Champions <laughs> is a film from 1999 directed by Alan Rudolph, as you already said, based on the current Vonnegut novel of the same name. And it tells the story of Dwayne Hoover, who is a car dealership mogul big shot name in a small town person who's having some sort of midlife crisis 
and mental breakdown and uh, a cast of colourful characters around him as well as the parallel story of the science fiction author Kilgore Trout who Vonnegut used as a kind of author surrogate in his novels because he appears in a number of his novels who is um, travelling to a writers festival or arts festival in this town to finally get some recognition for his work so that's just the the basic plot it's not especially a plot driven film no or a novel i assume no certainly not as a certain type of cliche i did have a funny get phase um when i was uh, getting into literature i guess wait how old are you a teenager i don't know like 15 or something and i first started reading things like catch 22 and vonnegut slaughterhouse 5 catch 22 yeah that's not a vonnegut novel i'm not saying it was a vonnegut novel it's a joseph heller novel you're talking about your vonnegut phase i said i was started reading things like catch 22 and vonnegut okay. slaughterhouse 5 okay so i mean i could replay the tape when i edit this and we can see who's right It's kind of uh, concerning. Oops, too far. And I first started reading things like Catch-22 and Vonnegut Slaughterhouse 5. It just sounded like you you talking about your Vonnegut phase. And then you said Catch-22. Do you think I'd mistake that? <laughs> I'm saying the audience might. Or the audience might, right. They're dumb sheep. Thanks for listening to our podcast. So when I was reading things like, okay, let's be clear. When I was reading things like Joseph Heller's Catch-22 and Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse-Five, that type of literature was uh, appealing to me at the time. Uh, and I eventually progressed on to other works of Vonnegut, including Breakfast of Champions. Uh, and that's uh, an interesting work of his because a lot of it is about artistic failure, really. Something that you can, you can relate to personally. <laughs> I can relate to, yeah, absolutely. While he's telling the story in, in, in his deadpan kind of style, there's like a simultaneous contempt for forming his own sentences and even telling a story, which is explicit in the novel. It ends with him just making a pro- proclamation under his character, Kilgore Trout, make me young, and then a picture of a drawing of him crying. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> That's the end of the book. Um, and... <laughs> The characters and the plots and stuff, as with Vonnegut novels, they're not really there to be to be world of characters. That's not really the type of writer he is. There's a detachment and there's a caricature prop style, which I'm not saying at all is a criticism of his writing. It's it's just not the way he works. Yeah, it's just the style that he... It's difficult to... Particularly this novel. Like There are other novels you could adapt that have more of a story in Slaughterhouse-Five and... Sirens of Titan, which is going to be a TV series soon. Or um, uh, the one with the cats. Cat's Cradle, yeah. Yeah. But this one, it's sort of like a incoherent... Narrative, yeah. I mean, it's not incoherent. It's just that nothing really happens. Well, the film is incoherent. Um, so the, the way I was approaching this film was to see how Alan Rudolph would uh, tackle these creative problems. Who you had not heard of before watching this, right? He's kind of like a well-known sort of minor author. He was like a protege of um, Altman, right? Yes, and people really like some of his films. And actually, there's a retrospective going on right now 
at the Quad Cinema of his films. I'm going to go see one on Sunday called Trouble in Mind. I can't speak for his other work. I can see that he's not like a, a hack. No, he's not a hack. You, you can tell that even from this film, which I don't think is very good. As, as far as I understand it, his best years were behind when he made this, which is probably evident. I mean, it's ambitious, you could say. To even tackle this material is ambitious because he wrote and directed it. So, yeah, I was looking for how he would deal with the material. And the, the, the main missed opportunity, I think, for me is that because the novel has that dialogue, if to, for want of a better word, between the creator and his own fiction. Yeah, there's, there, you need to find a sort of cinematic equivalent to that. That's not just like... Yeah, so it needs to incorporate the cinematic form in a more self-conscious way, I guess. And the only concession it makes to that is by having those segments where they, they're filming an ad for the car dealership in which Kurt Vonnegut himself has a brief cameo as the director of the ad. Oh, really? I didn't... Yeah. Didn't well, if you notice that. someone like deliver a line really badly that was kind of funny junior but yeah they should have they should have incorporated it him the director doing stuff right yeah like alan, alan rudolph like doing this kind of like adaptation ended up doing this would this that approach would make sense for something like breakfast of champions it, it definitely feels more conventional than i assume the novel is based on what i've heard about it yeah the novel's not conventional yeah so what do you think of the film i guess so uh, I, I found the first half of the film quite tough going. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So it seemed like one of those quirky satire of sort of a middle American town type of things, which I hate. And uh, I mean, I kind of enjoyed watching Bruce Willis struggle through his performance. <laughs> yeah, he's so bad. Uh, I think he was on board as like a passion project. Yeah, I feel, well. I feel like he could have like done this role well, though, you know, but, but it doesn't. I think I think the issue is that like instead of like trying to make this character like there are there are scenes where like he looks right you know what I mean, but whenever he's like talking, it just doesn't feel feel good. But he did make me enjoy the film more because of his performance and presence. Uh, yeah, he's a, he's certainly the most enjoyable part of it. I think um, even if he is really bad, but yeah, he just feels really misplaced. Uh, I'm glad that this is one of the only movies that acknowledges that he he's going bald, which I thought was funny. <laughs> I wouldn't say I enjoyed sort of the uh, manic sort of atmosphere it, it goes for, right? And at a certain point, it did really great on me. But there, I, I just sort of appreciate it. I think some of the visuals are okay. Yeah, I think I think I think I enjoyed sort of the weird sort of cinematic effects, like not so much like the name, like going in and out, like the the, but uh, some of the stuff where I was like cutting to his brain and then it was acting strange. Yeah, I liked like, I liked the brain. And I like, I like, I especially this this scene that I thought was like the best movie like, by far was when they meet in the restaurant and it, there's for some reason like it's just just starts playing these bizarre swirls on their faces. Yeah, I agree. I, I liked that the most as well because that's that's when the film started to feel a bit more coherent as a piece of work, not necessarily coherent in its style, but as no. A work. Um, and then it immediately goes back to incoherence when <laughs> at the indie. It's funny that the book ends with the. Uh, Kilor Trout wanting to be young in the movie actually does it for some reason. He actually, yeah, has a fantasy sequence where he steps inside a billboard. Like, what the what the fuck was the point of that? That was a bit odd, yeah. I, I also think the problem with selecting this particular novel to adapt is that it comes across like terrible satire for a good portion of it. I think it kind of gets past that, as we said, in some of those later scenes. But certainly, like, the setup of the dealership and stuff Comes across like terrible satire. <laughs> actually, I really liked all of the uh, 
the car commercials that I'll say. The actual advertisements. Yeah, I thought they were like well done. I mean, I, that might not be something that translates especially well to a non-American idiom, but uh, if you watch like local television or TV that has like has local commercials, like you will see like things like this to a certain extent. No, no, yeah, we we do have similar stuff here. That's comparable. So, I thought that was I thought that was enjoyably on point. That was like that was like the one point where I was like, oh, Bruce Willis can be kind of funny. What did you, what did you think of uh, Nick Nolte? <laughs> he was, no, he was terrible. Nick Nolte's the worst he, part of the he movie. He and the character. Him and Omar Epps. Quite uh, troubling, I would say. Yeah. Yeah, I just, I don't even know. It, it was just really sort of like fetish shaming, I guess. Uh, but him and Omar Epps were like the worst part of the movie for me. And the scene where they're like in the in the office there, there's like the like the nadir of cinema, basically. Because <laughs> they're both like, like overacting so hard, you know? <laughs> and like the, the fray just kept on like canting and stuff. And I was just like, it made me feel kind of ill, actually. <laughs> Well, it's it's okay if it's okay if it if it's trying to make you feel that way, you know. But this is just like it's trying to make me feel like I don't know, trying to make you laugh or feel off kilter. Just make you feel kind of like sick. I do not think was the intention watching it. I just I, there, it, it, it's like there's it tries so hard to be like about stuff, you know. We just felt it felt like kind of damp. But the, again, I, I I there were some moments of visual stylization that I really enjoyed. I both liked and didn't like how, like, a lot of the stuff was just, like, people repeating, like, commercial catchphrases at each other. And I thought it's, like, it's both, like, sort of true to life to a certain extent and also just really obnoxious. Did you know, uh, you know Lucas Haas, who plays, uh, Bruce Willis' son in this? Yeah. Did you know he's a member of the Pussy Posse? Is he really? He was, yeah. With, uh, Toby and, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, David Blaine. And David Blaine, really? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> What a time to be alive. Well, the one weird thing about this, and again... <laughs> no, no, we're talking about the pussy posse. The, one, the other weird thing about this, and I have to qualify it by saying that I haven't read the novel, you know, since I was 15, is it's not like a psychedelic, surrealistic, disorienting swirl of a narrative. It's unconventional. But there's a, there's a deadpan detachment to the way Vonnegut tells the story. Well, it's funny because the, uh, that's the stuff that works the best. In the in the in the movie, yeah, but like it, it seems like it's trying to capture this essence of a novel that's not really in the novel. It's odd. I guess he's just found his own way of dealing with the strange nature of the narrative in the novel. But yeah, and I guess tr- capturing, I guess, the mindset of central character in the way it's directed. But yeah, the, what I responded to in 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 Kurt Vonnegut's prose, I felt I, I think what I like most about him is the stuff where it's like. I'm I'm kind of defeated as a novelist in writing this novel. That does sound that does sound kind of interesting. We also read Breakfast of Champions for that reason. Remember I remember uh when I friends in high school read Breakfast of Champions and uh apparently there's a sea or there's a sequence where or no uh, at one point he Vonnegut draws a, a picture of a vagina and that's the only part of the, the novel that I read. Is that picture of a vagina. So there you go. He also draws like uh, it looks like a large asterisk, right? And he and he says it's a picture of his asshole early in the novel, and they use that in the credit sequence of this film. Oh, really? That's funny. Possibly when it's a Alan Rudolph's name, it's like right above it, which is Kurt Vonnegut's asshole. The credit sequence wasn't bad, actually. It was kind of like a a throwback to like the Saul Bass kind of stuff. What do you think of the music? Um, I don't remember the music. I thought it was pretty annoying. Probably was annoying. <laughs> 
but I don't remember it enough to comment. Like a lot of it felt like sort of like a faux like lounge singer jungle beat. If that makes any sense, yeah. No, I remember. It now. There's plenty of like lounge uh, numbers in this as well. It does like this that central uh, yeah lounge song uh, repeats throughout most of the film, if I remember correctly. Yeah, annoyingly. How many stars did you get it? Oh, uh, like two maybe. I'd get two and a half. What, what, how many stars did you give Chasing Amy? I don't think we ever got it. Two stars. Two? Come on, man. I enjoyed this more than I enjoyed Chasing Amy. Because at least at this, like, I was occasionally entertained by how, like, wacky the imagery was. All right, let's move on to uh, the couple of things we watched. Diverting from our usual format of a highlight, low light, and uh, wild card. I'm just going to talk about everything we've seen. You're going to talk about two movies. I'm going to talk about one. <laughs> just because we haven't watched much. <laughs> So go for it. So the best film I saw uh, since our last unreleased episode, or maybe now released by the time you hear this, who knows? Because I guess if we release them, this will come after the ones we released. This is a very important point to make. So the best film I saw was Dames. And the reason I watched Dames is because uh, occasionally I scour the 2012 Sight and Sound uh, critics and directors poll and I like going through critics and directors I recognize and looking at their individual top tens and then jotting down any film I haven't seen or heard of. And I think I got Dames from uh, Edgar Wright's list. That's the reason I chose this particular one from his catalog, at least, because I've always wanted to see Busby Berkeley and I haven't. So I'm a, I'm a big fan of movie musicals, but the style I was more accustomed to is the Fred Astaire style where when you're shooting a dance sequence, you show the whole performer and you want to show that that was actually a feat that they have practiced and rehearsed and not a trick of the camera. And I know that Fred Astaire like hated Busby Berkeley. And actually had him killed. Now, I don't know if people know that, but yeah. And uh, I'd never properly experienced Busby Berkeley. I'd seen like the way his style has infiltrated culture since and like references to his style. And I think I'd seen like little bits and pieces of clips from his actual film. And I was a little bit cynical thinking like, uh, you know, maybe I prefer the more Fred Astaire style where you, you can really enjoy the performer and the choreography and stuff like that. But having seen... Just a fucking elitist. Yeah. Having seen the sequence in Dames that Berkeley handles, which is the last maybe 30 minutes of the film. That's the, that's the same as it is in, um, in Full Effort, actually. It took my breath away it was astonishing yeah it's fucking great <laughs> i couldn't believe i couldn't shit. believe how good it was and just even even the the techniques and tricks from a film from 1934 that's oh, fucking crazy it's, oh my it's god absolutely insane absolutely insane I, I i'm speechless in trying to articulate how amazing it was and it basically transforms a film that was you know fine quite enjoyable for the first hour and it's just it's just sort of a basic story in which it kind of satirizes american moralism and uh yeah uh so full i prayed sort of functions in that way too where the, that's interesting the, the container of the movie is like sort of like whatever but it's more of a satire of like the show business actually okay this is this is kind of specifically satirizing like organizations that you know promote american morals and that sort of stuff over yeah like the that would soon learn to lead to the creation of the uh the code the yeah production the code. production code and and even the kind of mccarthyism organizations that uh, there's always been a strain of that in american political thought so this is kind of an amusing you know satire of that that type of thing and it's just like a an enjoyable american farce 
um, similar to a lot of other ones with uh, with Dick Powell and stuff like that. And then uh, because it's a, one of these early um, Busby Berkeley related productions, at some point, you know, they, they're staging something, right? And a curtain opens and then Busby Berkeley takes over. But I love that there's no concession to make it seem like it's happening on a stage whatsoever. That's I love that too. <laughs> Where in the beginning it's like, oh, well, it's, it's, it's especially strange. How, how, how are they framed in... In games, like what's this? What is the diegetic um, excuse for the productions? Do you know what I mean? So the as in in the plot, what's the fictional like artifice of them? You know what I mean? Like what are they presented as? A Broadway musical. Because it, it's sort of it's sort of the same thing in Full Life, right? But as soon as it like cuts it, it's like there's no way this is on stage because there's all these different ca- camera angles. Or it uses like it uses uh it uses like fade ins or like push in stuff to like. It's great. It's amazing. The curtain opens up and a car drives past and it's like a street scene. It's great in this. And it's so ahead of its time. Even just the way it shoots like little dialogue scenes in between the musical numbers show an astonishing vitality that were kind of absent from the rest of the film. Um, That it's kind of funny that it's supposed to be happening on a stage um, and it uses so many more tricks and effects than the rest of the film, which is really stagey by comparison. Um, In just that sort of old style of invisible direction but yeah these are like the best musical sequences i've ever seen honestly so (laughs) wow that's high praise but yeah just the way he transforms human bodies into these psychedelic geographic patterns great it's crazy i underrate him before seeing him because everything else that like apes that style apes it badly or apes it in a really limited fashion because obviously to achieve the type of effects uh, that he did requires an astonishing amount of work more than you'd be willing to do for like a simple homage joke in in a comedy or something and i, I kind of like the genre of films and it's similar with some of the fred, fred astaire and uh, ginger rogers films as well in which there's like the simultaneous conventional film and then there's like a better film within the film every time like fred astaire and ginger rogers dance or Every time um, Busby Berkeley takes over, well, it, it sort of like highlights the difference between like oh reality versus like this fantasy that he's making. Yeah, he's he's a uh, non-parallel when it comes to directing spectacle. I think, or at least at least in musical numbers, it was better than I ever expected it would be. Uh, okay, I guess I'll talk about my film now. I don't really have a lot to say about this film, but uh, watched a Cuban film called Memories of Underdevelopment, right? Which I thought was pretty great. Uh, it's sort of like a new wave-ish uh, combination of like an essay film and this uh, quasi-autobiographical fictionalized account of this uh, bourgeois bureaucrat, not bureaucrat, but he's just like a bourgeois sort of member of the intelligentsia who uh, after decides to stay in Cuba after the revolution, right? With so many of the people there are immigrating to the States or whatever. Uh, so many people of his class are, if he decides to stay uh, for s- s- no real reason, and it's sort of made aware of his own sort of uh, meaninglessness in the in the new world that's being created because he he refuses to like leave and and stuff. And um, it's pretty brilliant. Uh, it has a very sort of interesting technique that uh, has been described as collage-like and incorporates sort of newsreel footage and and sort of just weird asides that that are sort of essayistic and almost like Chris Marker-ish. Uh, in addition to telling this like very sort of uh, fragmented and odd story uh, about this about this uh, bourgeois uh, sort of property owner, um, and he's just sort of like he's just rich and he just doesn't do anything at all. 
except for just like wander around Havana and like seduce, try to seduce like young women. It's a film that's like uh, it's interesting, criti- interestingly critical of both sort of the revolution in some scenes and also in uh, also of like uh, capitalist society. Uh, and I thought it was pretty pretty well done. Um, the style is so like so such the specific mixture of like uh yeah like new wave like plus a little bit of like social realism and also just a, a dollop of um like the essay film and i just thought it was really brilliant interesting it's really so inclined i think you would really enjoy it actually was that part of your syllabus yes according to my professor it's one of the most famous like cuban films interesting i'll add it to my little watch list it, it, it has the protagonist like loathsome but a portrays in such a way that makes it so as lonesomeness is like purposeful i guess i really enjoyed it yeah i think you should i think you should check it out but that's what i've got to say about memories of underdevelopment okay what was the last film that you watched the last film i watched and, and i only just watched so perhaps i haven't had much earlier today to digest it no literally like right before we started recording i finished watching it um, and it was the film uh, Metropolitan by Whit Stillman. What made you decide to watch that? I've heard about him, but I've never seen him, so I was curious. I'm the same way. So all my, the only notes I got a chance to write before recording was uh, preppy Eric Ramirez. <laughs> Eric Ramirez is pretty preppy, though. This is preppier. <laughs> French, French, French preppy. This is preppier because it's like young... The, the, the cast is young. Oh. Oh, gotcha. And they actually use the word preppy in the film. The prep, They even say the preppy class. Um, so it was a weird film. I didn't enjoy it that much, to be honest. This, so essentially it uses, like, the aesthetics of early 20th century dinner society uh, with a bunch of young people dressed up in tuxedos and having after-dance parties. Sort of this legacy of of uh, an earlier time but it's set in in the present day when it was made in 1990 so when they're out on the streets of new york it's present day but they the characters are all like college students or something i didn't really understand exactly what the context was who uh throw these dances and after parties in which they're all dressed up in fancy costumes that look like they belong to a bygone era so you do have that that kind of tension between their style and the rest of the world. Um, and you don't really, there's no real adult characters. Like, I mean, you, you see one of the characters, mother, and there's a conversation with a guy in a bar at one point. But other than that, it's just all these college kids. So it feels funny and it feels like a student film kind of in that way. And yeah, it's just a bunch of annoying people like talking to each other for a while. <laughs> so it's like my kind of film. I didn't really enjoy it. Like, I didn't really get much out of it. It's not terrible. Uh, and there's interesting things. I might check out like Last Days of Disco or something. But, but yeah, I wasn't quite sure what uh, Whit Stillman was trying to go for here. Having fun. And there's kind of a romance story in it. It doesn't really uh, go anywhere or or you're really that invested in. So he's I know he's been called like a to some extent a precursor to Wes Anderson. I don't know because there's preppy precocious protagonist, I guess. But uh, And I'm not sure how his style developed over the course of his other films. I didn't enjoy the dialogue so much, which is... That's funny because people always talk about how... Yeah, like a very literate dialogue and talking about, you know, witty and urbane and philosophical and stuff. But I prefer that coming from 
you know, like Eric Romare and stuff. It's more interesting. Because it's French. It's just, the pretentiousness sort of feels natural. It really owns its pretentiousness when it's... Uh, like, with the, with the um, French stuff, uh, sometimes I feel, like, intellectually lost in some of the dialogue, right? Like, I'm missing context and reference points where it seems above me. I'm, I'm not sure if that's actually true, if I knew what they were talking about or referring to in some of them. But it seems, like, intellectually sophisticated... And this didn't necessarily for me. It just it just seemed like someone trying to write that way. And and there's like a, a thing of like, is he satirizing these people? Is he I don't think it's like necessarily saying hooray for these preppy young rich kids. And then he that's because he kills them at the end. With a shotgun. Fifty percent of them disappear suddenly. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I'll feel differently about this film once I sit on it a little bit longer. They just a little more. But uh gotcha. I guess that's everything we have to say in this episode, right? Yep.